to Ausploitation, the Ausploitation podcast. This is episode two, where we've now actually done some research. I'm Callum. I'm Daria. And I'm November. Cool. Yeah, so Ausploitation itself. So I actually made a point at the first episode of recording this of just not doing anything because I wanted, I remembered seeing Razorback as a kid. I just wanted to watch again with no preconceptions about looking for a particular thing and seeing what I liked. What it meant was is when it was uh, that part of the podcast where we were saying, well, what's Ausploitation? I had no idea. Not in Wikipedia, though, so that's No, fair. this is true, yeah. If we can't count on Wikipedia, well, I, what are we going you to know, do? Wikipedia and IMDb, if they both fail us, then we're How are of- we supposed to do our assignment copying from Wikipedia. Exactly right. Indeed. But it did seem at one point, I think Wikipedia seemed to believe that every movie produced from 1971 to 19, well, now, really, was exploitation in one form or another. But since then, I watched a really interesting, I was going to say good, good-ish documentary called... Um, Not Quite Hollywood. Not Quite Hollywood. That's the one. It, I say it is a good documentary if you start watching about halfway through. Yeah. Did you watch it, Daria? I watched it before, like before we were even doing this. Yeah. Bought a copy to watch, but I haven't watched it again since. Well, it's, yeah, the start of it is like they're making an Ausploitation movie, except, you know, it's just meant to be talking about it. Just like, yes, but we can talk about this as long as we have a stripper in the background. Like, there must be boobs on show at all times Mm. until you get to the second half of it, which is when they go into cars and martial arts and... Yeah. In fact, funnily enough, I'd say that what they're doing is exploiting content of the early movies so they can get as much tits and ass and occasional vomiting scenes on the screen as possible. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Surely they're after a bit of artistic irony. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And there are reasons why they filmed it and the way that they did and so on. Yeah, so I I don't know. I mean, maybe this time, because what we could do is each episode, maybe we can talk a little bit more about one thing or another. And then after we've done a few of these, we can have an informed opinion about whether we think something's an Ausploitation movie or not. And maybe you all out there will too. But from a purely nomenclature point of view, so Ausploitation movies are a subgenre of exploitation movies, which were movies that weren't necessarily deep on artistic merit or storyline or plot, but were basically a method of trying to make a successful movie without putting in too much effort. Sometimes it's just by simply making it for X and then trying to sell it for X plus Y. Sometimes it's by making a genre film. I need to apologise to all our listeners right now. It's just we have a cat who's very, who's very, very needy. We put some curtains up to deaden some of the sound. The cat is entirely unsure about this concept. He knows you can walk through the curtains to get to the humans, but just doesn't appreciate the concept. Well, the curtains are black and he's black, so he probably thinks the curtains are his. <laughs> He is not very bright. I was going to say, my cat has an existential crisis. We'll see what happens. Well, you know, maybe he made some films back in the day. Could have done. Oh, that's entirely possible. Mouseploitation films. Oh, I love it. Just lots of dead mice, and therefore... So, yeah. (laughs) I think Andy Warhol made that. I saw an amazing piece of YouTube footage the other day of Andy Warhol eating a Hungry Jack's burger or Burger King burger, and he just films himself eating a burger and then just being really uncomfortable in front of the camera. But... And that sound is our neighbour's boyfriend's car. Lovely chap. It's nice, quite loud, though. Nice and immersive for this month's film. Yeah, this is fantastic. Oh. And we thought the problem last one was the wind. I'll just continue writing on my notes while the car goes away. <laughs> okay, so my understanding of an exploitation film is that you try to make money by doing something which... exploiting something. Sometimes it's exploiting tax breaks. Sometimes it's exploiting the use of a particular culture or a particular 
basic concept so you can get away with not making a storyline or not having anything to say. Sometimes it's exploiting the audience, which was apparently a big aspect of these, was just to release them in these kind of cinemas where it didn't really say very much. False advertising being a big one, and we might get onto that with this particular movie because all of the advertising around Cars at 8 Paris, which I don't think we've actually introduced as the movie we're doing this time yet. No, no, we haven't. You are quite right. That possibly could have come up right at the head there. Yeah. Uh, uh, this month on Osploitation, <laughs> we're covering... The Cars the at 8. Cars Paris. Les voitures qui ont mange Paris. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Cars at 8 Paris, and there is a very... <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, so false advertising, get people into the cinemas, sell it in a special way. The classics, as I think we mentioned last time, were the black exploitation films, yes. which were about utilising American black culture as a stand-in for anything they didn't feel like doing, whether it's writing a plot or oh, I see. paying major actors or, you know, all the sort of stuff that would keep the budget down to a bare minimum and then selling it. So, yeah, and then the subgenre of that being exploitation movies, which is a bit of a vague one, was kind of the, the actual term was made up sort of on the fly by Quentin Tarantino in an interview about the utilisation of a movement that was happening anyway in Australia, which was this, this big push away from movies that were all arty or period pieces to subversive cinema and and new wave and everything that was happening, but you could do it for cheap in Australia because nobody films in Australia, therefore you don't need to pay people big dollars, and then you can sell it just purely because everyone's got a funny accent. Well, also it was Gough Whitlam government, mm-hmm. and so there was lots of promoting the arts. Yep. Oh, God, that was a wonderful. So it really takes off around 1974. Mm. Which, funnily enough, was when this movie was made. So, uh, and as we mentioned before, apparently the first official exploitation movie is Stork. Which, which was... looks terrible, but we will <laughs> be watching that soon. And I actually listened to an interview with Bruce Spence talking about Stork, which explains why it maybe looks the way it looks, because he kind of fell into acting a bit like Harrison Ford. Bruce Spence in every exploitation movie, or is that just my imagination? Well, he wasn't in the last one. He wasn't in, uh, he didn't make an appearance in... Um... Oh, right. I just assumed, yeah, you're right. He didn't. It's like... But surely that was Bruce Spence. And I was like, oh, yeah. of course. But no. Bruce Spence But in most of the other ones, so that's fair. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> and every mo- Bruce Spence makes any movie better. I love Thank Bruce Spence. God. He's one of my all-time favourite actors. In fact, as was the case last time, I watched this with my flatmate. And as soon as... Well, she's also a bit of a film scholar, but not of Australian films per se. But as soon as he turns up on the screen, Bruce Spence, she says, Isn't he the guy who always plays nutters? <laughs> Yeah. Yes, pretty much. That would be correct. Which, in fact, went on to say, doesn't he still play Nutters? <laughs> well, he played the bottom half of Nutters. He played the Jaws of Sauron, and he played a, yes, in, in one of today. the Star Wars films and a couple of other things. So and he was he's... in Blue World Order. Yes, he was as a Nutter, funnily <laughs> enough. Which, I guess, Blue World Order might be considered an exploitation movie. Yeah, I was wondering that myself, too. Yeah. Have I'll you have seen to... it? They've extended the screenings. Oh, yeah, I went to the Q&A. Ah. Hey. I have to talk to Che whether he'd be happy having his movie considered exploitation. Possibly not. To be fair, we're not asking Peter Weir. <laughs> no, this is true. This is true. Um, Peter Weir's probably a bit busy and also harder to get hold of than Che. Oh, look, I mean, it makes perfect sense that somebody who, after going to this, made the most amazing film in Green Card. I think he just went from strength to strength. So, mm. yeah, definitely. So, so possibly now maybe someone should actually introduce the movie that we're doing. Well, we'll just play the trailer for you all first. 
promises great things for our town. The light is at the end of the tunnel. Welcome to Paris. It happens in hospitals all over the country. Accident. But it's the world we live in. It's the world of the Mardi. Listen to me. Now you get this into your mind. Nobody, Lyris. No one. Well, we get far more opportunity to do experimental work in the surgery and psychiatry than your city expert. This is where the really exciting work. I have two hobbies. The past, which is manifest in these lovely old country towns like Paris. And the future, which lies with our youth. I got this one. This one's mine. You shut up. You irreligious bat! Daddy, daddy! Come on, come on. Uh, have you country boys forgotten the old school war crime? Have you forgotten the meaning of those words? Woomera, Woomera, Babaloo, Boomerang, Crocodile, Kookaburra, Wombat, Orangutan, Wee-ho, Way-ho, Taramanga Mine, Kondong, Billabong, Gundabluey Pine, Platypus, Emu, Wallaby, Rue, Ivers, Bulgur, White Cockatoo, Harabara, Cowra, No one leaves Paris. No one. The Cars That Ate Paris, 1974. Oh, I watched The Cars That Eat People. Oh, Damn. Gee, that's such a tip. Yeah, well, that's um, less than 60-minute film, that oh, one. Ah, it's yeah. terrible. So maybe a bit of explanation. After an attempt to sell this movie to America a number of times that fell on all sorts of terrible problems, an edit was released officially in America called The Cars That Eat People, and it was terrible. The, we'll get into the details, but they overdubbed the main actor with a... Brooklyn, Brooklyn, accent, Brooklyn accent, filling it up with a ton of exposition that wasn't really clear about that. Took a huge slice out of the middle of the film, and yeah. It is worth watching. It's free on YouTube to watch, and I would say that you were probably paying about as much as it's worth. Or well, possibly ask for a refund, really. Maybe, yeah. You'll certainly not get that, that hour of your life back. But if you can lead with the actual film, The Cars of Eight Paris, that would be the way to go. Was there anyone in this that you hated straight away? As a character, as an actor. As a character. Definitely the mayor. The mayor wrapped me up the wrong way. Yep. Hmm. I don't think I came out of the gate hating anybody straight away. I didn't hate him straight away. I just liked him straight away. And then I saw his bookshelf. All the books were arranged in colour. I was like, no, you're a Taylor wanker. <laughs> 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 he 
lost lost all respect right then. Jesus. And his obsession with the pioneers. The pioneers. Yeah, that's the word. <gasps> yeah. Yeah, including apparently Abraham Lincoln, well-known Australian pioneer that he was. <laughs> so that costume at the end was bizarre. The whole costume party was strange. But, yeah, so, the cars that ate Paris. This is a tale of, it's not that outsider comes to a small town genre. In this case, our hero is an Arthur Waldo. Yes, it is. Yep. Ends up crashing, well, his brother crashes their car into the small town of Paris, Paris, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, you missed the bit in the opening scenes, <clears throat> which was cars that I Paris proudly brought to you by I... Coca-Cola and Alpine cigarettes, the smoother way to die. <laughs> in, yes, in fact, the the aforementioned flatmate actually thought that I'd got one of the copies that still had the adverts stuck on the front when... Yes, that. <laughs> which is which is my understanding is exactly what they meant. They meant it to look like an advert that you would see at the start of a cinema. So there's a an amazing if you ever see any of the 1970s ads for cigars. Uh, oh god, there's a there was a particular brand of cigar from the UK that's got a lot of these soft focus type commercials around it. Um, I can't actually picture any cigarettes. I can only picture oh, cigarette ads at the movies. Little oh, sc- skinny cigarillos. cigarillo type things. It's anyway have a Hamlet or something. I can't. I can't remember. But if you look for any of those, it's that exact style. It's this soft focus, ridiculously pretty for the time because dude has the scariest porn mo I think I've ever seen outside of actual porn. <laughs> and they get into this this open top car and they drive away from a country home and they've got the music going and then there's this slow close up on a pack of alpine cigarettes followed by a well if the tagline was anyway oh i did just know the answer to the question i was posing and now i don't that was the particular it was like anyway have a have a oh have a winfield Winfield was the aussie one yeah there was a there was a winfield ad at one of the stores that's right in the film yeah yeah, very, very proudly prominent Alpine cigarette packet followed by a very prominent can of Coke. And it all goes lovely and wonderful, and then the music starts to go a little bit Jaws-like, and then they drive off the side of the road. Yes. Because the wheel falls off. Yes, the wheel falls off. Okay, so he'd just been... Or am I getting things out of order here? No, I think I'm getting things out of order, because they go... Uh, is it the two brothers that go and get gas? Yeah, gas. what, from okay. the dude's front porch? <laughs> yes, and he doesn't even seem to put the hose in the car, but I could completely ignore that. I'm just like, what if he's worded up down the trail to sabotage cars? Oh. Like Mordecai in Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, I was going to say, you're exactly mm-hmm. right. As the kind of the lead dude to make everything, you know, this is something worthwhile. Because the thing that I could never understand was... Obviously, and we'll get into it, Paris itself lives off car crash economy. Its entire economy is based on basically trapping cars like they're sea animals and Which makes them. no sense. Why not just sabotage the cars? People earn more money. Why are they not why don't they have a slavery market? You're oh. not getting that much from a bashed up car. Well, the way I kind of looked at Paris a little bit like the dude that keeps turning up a cash converters with another car radio that he's had to oh, sell. Yeah. It's like yeah. you've got to remember that these people are sort of interacting with an environment that in the outside world they still need to sell to, I guess, what we consider sane people. And so... Oh, God, I just answered my own worst question. What's that? Throughout the whole thing, I was wondering where all the women are. Ah. There are girls... And there are older women, but there are no women in that age group of youth. Yeah. No. I hope those two things are connected, but now they are in my head. Yeah, I'd say either they're on a certain dark market. or in, Yeah, in fact, all of the physicians 
patience, they're all men. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of very definite women at the end in the, the pioneers. Yes, ball, but they're not the, the veggies. Balls. Oh no, no, the, the veggies. Remember when the veggies oh, okay. make that random oh, right, appearance? Right. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, you're right. I I kind of got the impression that the majority of the drivers ended up as meat, or yeah, I Ew. don't think. I well, not like not like meat, meat. Sorry, <laughs> right. no. I mean, yeah, like, I hadn't added cannibalism. Body, to no. This. I... <laughs> so throughout the film, we do we don't see a car eating a person. We do see three people chucking a cow in the back. And the brothers just smile at each other. Oh, that's a thing that happens. Well, yeah, because I was going to say, I I got the impression, it's really weird, because the way that the, the movie was marketed and all the posters and everything make it seem like it's another type of Mad Max, but obviously it's yeah. not, because well, it's... The title certainly implies that cars will eat something or someone at some point, yeah. which does not occur. No, no, and not... Technically speaking, they wear a person at one point, but that's just because of the spike. It's hard to get out. Even in the metaphorical sense, it's probably more parasitic in the cars. Yeah. Although you could see that as if you want to go truly arty, and I've got some deep dives, <laughs> that the cars ate the people, their souls, because they were living off the cars, and it all got very metaphorical. Um, I was waiting for the cars to be alive and attack the town, because it's the cars that are being tortured here, as well as the people, obviously. Well, <laughs> it's interesting, because there were a couple of points where there were definite animal noises mixed into the engine. Okay, I thought that was Bruce Spence. So when there's the first, when the brothers have the car crash, there's that crazy animal noise. That's the same sound Bruce Spence makes when he's playing with the Jaguar hood ornaments. Ah, well, and we don't know he's at least partly responsible for some of them because he boasts about killing the preacher. Yeah, well, this is the thing. I got the impression they use Bruce Spence as the kind of the catcher. And then he's way down the rung because this is the, I mean, the other thing about it, and I've got to be honest, I really enjoyed it the more I watched it. I've seen it a couple of times now because the first time I saw it, it was just, well, it's not Mad Max. I'm disappointed. I remember seeing it when I was younger. And you you have this car that's all through the ads, all over the image, and it doesn't show up until 15 minutes before the ends. I think there are a lot of people who are in the place I was where I had watched this film when I was much, much younger. I think it was a Minnow mm-hmm. movie or something. Yep. And I kind of remembered the last 15 minutes of mm. being the whole movie. I think that would be yeah. the same with Mad Max with a lot of people too, though. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, no, I really got the class structure that they're talking about in this film and really – and that was the thing about Bruce Spencer's character. But is there a class structure? There is, oh, yeah, very much I, so. It's kind of like there's the mayor and the doctor mm. and then pretty much everyone else. But that's the thing. So no, I, it's not – it's the working and the non-working. Exactly, yeah. And I, I very much got the impression that you see these dystopian films, I mean, you know, like the newest Mad Max with the Morton Joe and, and people like that, they're already well established in that area. You don't, you know, you don't piss off the Emperor, you don't piss off the Morton Joe, they're already established and scary. Yeah. I really got the impression that this, that the mayor, that John Mayan's character, Len, is trying to establish a setup like that. And he sort of carries that weight, but it's all very tentative. And you can see that, a lot of the people in the town aren't really happy with it. And the fact that they've got the disaffected youth and they've got those kind of, like, the the fence lurkers. So Bruce Spencer's character, who could go either way, the the chief of police and the... Oh, my God. Oh, sorry. I'll, I'll get back to him. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the chief of police and Daryl, the intern in particular. The orderly. Yeah, that are notionally still the youth but are in that kind of camp of the growing up. So I kind of got the impression that it's all very muddled and... And Arthur fits in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like, we'll adopt you as our son. Because um, despite that terrible... But he'd have a job like grown-ups do. Yes. Oh, yeah, his relationship with the mayor got weird as... 
Yeah, I think we were supposed to read Arthur as younger than he looks, especially younger than he, he looks by today. He was actually only, thing. like, 25 at the time. But seriously, he's bald with a comb over. Yeah. Mm. He's actually younger, four years younger than Bruce Spence. Wow. Is there any actual youth in this film except Mare's children and a couple of other kids? Oh, you around. mean the actual kids? But the, the youth who drive the cars, they're not... Well, they um, have to be stuntmen, mostly. <laughs> it took me ages to work out where I recognised Arthur. Uh, Terry Caminiri from as well. And that is that to people of a certain age and background, what he will be doing is sitting on the edge of your recollection for being Napoleon in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, Frank, yes! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. I actually recognised him first as the bathtub watcher of The Truman Show, which, of course, is another Peter Weir movie. He's the guy in the bathtub. from the bathtub, not a dude watching a fucking bathtub. Okay, up to speed. I just thought that was a weird sentence. The dude who basically spends the entire film in the bath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's there as well. Oh, in fact, I think I've recognised the bathtub watcher as Napoleon and just didn't reconnect this time. There you go. But, yeah, I yeah, – and this is the thing. It gets really hard to describe the movie because I, I genuinely think that in that really art-wanky way it is a subversive film because, you know, I wrote down on the off chance that I was the one who had to introduce it, is that it's basically the isolated craziness of Texas Chainsaw Massacre – along with a struggling town of a Western with a mad scientist movie a la Island of Dr. Moreau thrown in there with a little bit of Mad Max and maybe a social commentary uh, all wrapped up in the equivalent of The Wicker Man. Because seriously, it's not any one thing. I actually felt, and maybe this was because they made it in 1974 and I'm watching it in 2018, that there was a much darker film just below the set. Oh, yeah, Mm. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I felt I should have got more of a sense that they were, that they was essentially metaphorically or otherwise cannibalizing the crashed cars and their occupants, whether it's for workforce or parts or even hmm. worse, literally cannibalizing them. Yeah. Or and medical knowledge, of course. Yes. Yeah. Well, there is that, me- yeah, how much is medical knowledge and how much is let's just have some fun with a Ryobi drill. Yes. Okay, so is this skipping ahead too far? Do you think the doctor was a real doctor? I believe he was actually qualified. Actually, no. If I was going to headcanon it, I believe he went to medical school, did not pass as a doctor, but got enough knowledge to make himself dangerous. Because he knows the school song that they sing at the end. Oh, yeah. I have no idea where in Buttfuck New South Wales he is getting the education that he's going to be a doctor. And right toward the end, when Arthur becomes a parking superintendent, Daryl says to Arthur, so you're not going to become a doctor anymore. Like, really? Is that what a doctor is in this town? I'm not entirely mm. sure. Just like, yeah, you're right. It's a black and decker drill. Yeah, it really um, is. I think maybe he doesn't have proper medical knowledge that so you just get promoted from orderly up to doctor like you're in The Sims. Yes, I yeah. think so, yes. And this is the, I mean, that's... <laughs> multi-level marketing which then could be that first commentary on the society of australia because and i don't know if we're sort of unique in that maybe it's a bit like america other than that i don't really know of many other countries like it where the towns themselves are so scattered that it's really difficult to get a full contingent of what you would consider to be the essential services represented in individuals so yeah. you know you need a cop or two, you need a doctor or two. And, and even now, it's so hard to 
get people to go to these places mm. that you're kind of accepting. Because this is a town of something like a, you know, call it 140 people. You don't have a permanent doctor that lives there. If you've got a doctor, they go to all these different locations. So if they've got a doctor, he's not a real doctor. No. No. So, yeah, but no, I, I really did read it. In that, in that respect, and at least whether it's intentional or not, and this is the whole thing of how much intent do you read into what was done, because I understand from an interview with Peter Weir that his technique of actually filming was they were all learning. Just, I mean, this is Peter Weir's first movie. There's a whole bunch of the producers were all very new. So what they did is they had an idea roughly. They would film what they had written down, but then they had, you know, a few hours and all the camera stuff was set up, so then they'd start to improvise and they'd take some information. And Bruce Spence says that, you know, Peter Weir was really open to suggestions from the actors and that was what a lot of the other actors were saying too so what they ended up with was here is what we wanted to film and now here's a whole lot of extra stuff so let's go away and kind of cut it together and how much of any message oh, was this intended was a record. wouldn't you love to see the b <gasps> there must be well i think it was bruce spence said he had no idea how much b-roll was left on the floor but there must Ooh. be hours of footage that never well, made that's, it i mean that's the case with any film though oh yeah it's... but apparently even more so here because they had like all the federal funding and lots and lots of blank film and stuff so did either of you have any thoughts on the cop it took me a while to work out he in fact was a cop is that because he <laughs> looked like an smm colonel hogan <laughs> that was at least part of it, yes. Yes. <laughs> Which was actually a very close outfit to the offsider of Toe Cutter in the first Mad Max movie. It was a very similar high brown jacket, mm. oh, um, yeah. beret, the scarf. I actually ended up watching sequences of Mad Max after watching this to see if it was the same outfit. Which it wasn't, but it was a bit different. But it was still had very much a lot of the same reference points. And that was what I was actually going to say because. A lot of people would have gone into it thinking it's Mad Max or, or expecting Mad Max. Yeah. Obviously, it's not that true civilization breakdown dystopian future of Mad Max, but in that opening sequence, there's that shot where the guy's sitting there with all the various newspapers around, and you hear a couple of times the radio being broadcast throughout the movie talking about financial collapse in the Western world, and yeah. there was a sign that said, oh, what was it? It was something like, uh, you know, terrible, horribleness happening, Pope praise or things. Or Pope praise for the economy, basically. Yeah, so I kind of got the impression that they were suggesting the start of the decay of society. Uh, one of the headlines on the newspapers that they had outside the general store was the opposition warning that communism is coming. Yeah. Which, is, of course, would have been a, a 1974 something about fear. sociology. Uh, sorry, no sociology. Socialism? Uh, socialism, that's the one. This is because I read and noted these as, from my 2018 perspective, as some things never change. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That mm. right now on the radio, in fact, probably even literally if I turn news radio on right now, we'd hear about how the economy's about to fall on the toilet and that yes. people think you're socialism or to some kind of totalitarianism in some law or another. So I took that as the sort of 20th century Western world's perpetual view that their society is on the brink of collapse. It's interesting because, I mean, we we do live in a, in a world just at the moment where people believe that, that, you know, I mean, we've got the climate change, we've got certain world leaders. Every generation had something that was going to kill us exactly, all. Exactly, yeah. If it was, you know, duck and cover. Mm. There, there's always, um, every generation's had one. So you, you work on the principle that if they're actually thinking that part in their head, and, you know, I mean, there was the fuel crisis in America, and, of course, this is literally in the middle of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War's got another year to run before it's over officially. So, and that's another thing as well. There was no overt commentary about the military or Vietnam, but I do genuinely think at least part of the sensibility of that is in the film, and I've got to know oh, that Oh, maybe that's later. where all the actual young people are. 
Well, that wouldn't surprise me because there does seem to be that, you see, as you say, that section of what we would consider to be youth from the sort of the 16-year-olds to the yeah, none of them are there. young 20s. I admit I thought it was just like Dawson casting with 20-somethings playing teenagers again. Well, you don't know, do you? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I don't need Peter Weir to just walk out of prison. These guys are all like 35, but you're supposed to see the 15. All right, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> like Bruce Spence was 29, but even if he had looked like he was 17, ain't no way the army was going to be accepting that kid. No. He had issues. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what politics Peter Weir has or indeed if he feels strongly about anything in this regard, but I know that when national service and various kinds of conscriptions stopped happening in of the Western world, people said, well, now there's just been no discipline for our youth. Uh, oh, yes. And I'm wondering if, look at all these kids who are not going off to the war, they're oh, making like horrible hoon cars and mm. crashing into mayor's politically incorrect statues. Well, that's actually really, because, I mean, this is one of the things that I read into the very, very end, and I don't know whether to jump to that right now. But we have jumped around already, and I've been the fault of most of it. I'm sorry. No, I, think I, think just, we all I think it's just what we do. Yeah, this is what we do. So basically that realisation at the very end, the kind of the win for Arthur is that he can drive again, but he drives by basically smashing the orderly to pieces in his car. That's what he takes away. got a real Vietnam veteran back from the war you know we've done what the what the leaders have told us to do I now have the ability to live because I can but he's still not someone. going to get away because the roads are full of traps he's not going to get anywhere ah now that's actually oh, interesting okay. so I joked about having watched the cars that eat people but I did genuinely sit down and watch the cars that eat people just before this that moment the assumption I don't know whether you can assume in the cars that ate Paris whether he doesn't get away because he does seem to be heading off into the darkness and everything seems fine but in the cars that eat people it's completely overt because after oh, the credits yes, roll yes, they say they make it they play a smash note oh no or go back to the US and never think about Australia again or... well that's actually what's really weird I've just suddenly realized as you say this because in the cars that eat people, he's actually narrating this as a, as a moment in his life and then how he went back to America. But as the closing credits roll, you hear another car crash. It finishes on him driving maybe out of town. Maybe he, maybe it's like he's narrating from beyond the grave. But that's what I was going to say because I kind of got the impression in this one, in the proper version, that he did get away, that he drove off and never... Look, all I know is that... We know that There's the roads are full of traps. Yeah, that's a really good point because they do try to stop him. Everyone else tries to know. walk out of town, though, which I assume is because they know there are traps there. But oh, just why don't you just wait till morning? I realise that's a bit rational, but... There was a couple of interesting things I saw, which I, I don't know. In that ending sequence where everyone's leaving, there was this quick progression of vehicles 
I think a guy starts with a wheelbarrow, and then very quickly there is a hand-drawn horse cart. So we go from one wheel to two wheels to four, are you saying? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily one to two to four, but it's definitely a progression of vehicles because the horse cart followed by a very old car, like suddenly like an almost a Model T Ford. We've never seen any hint of that style Mm. before. Then followed by an actual car, and of course then followed by Arthur's modern (laughs) Holden. So there was this kind of real rapid-fire progression of the age of the vehicles, but I don't know whether or not that's significant or just happened to be what was going on because most of them walked out like refugees, which well, is what is they were. this is probably a question for you, Callum, rather than Daria. So we were seeing the – um, just as a car – I don't think of you as a car person. No, 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 that's where you were going. As a car person. <laughs> so sense. we see a car graveyard in Paris. Mm. Which is proper creepy. That I could work out. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) To my unknowledgeable, untrained eye, were the eras of the car shown? Like, it looked like there were older ones down the bottom and they were getting newer as it went up the hill? I. But that could just be my imagination. No, look, I'd want to go back and look. I didn't clock that at the time. But then that was only because all the cars looked old, because the 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 most recent car would have been 1974 model, and it, I would imagine for this film they're not going to you know go down to a showroom and buy a brand new car and trash it. So well, probably then for example though that old. Datsun 1600 that dies at the start, yeah, I mean oh, that's, actually, yeah, that's probably, smashed yeah. to pieces. But you know I kind of also thought there was a you don't they don't make them like they used to type thing. Okay, so these are the shells that lasted. That could be it too, because I certainly, I mean, you only have to drive around country towns to see, you know, 40, what, what, 50, 60 year old cars now. Yeah, they're still, still very much solid ish, mm. not necessarily drivable. Yeah, I don't know. It was, it was interesting. The one thing like that I did notice about that scene, especially the one where they sort of show it on the hillside in the daytime with the lovely music playing in the background is that having recognized a couple of moments where there's animal noises, mm. there's sheep buying. There's the sheep bleating as you're looking at the cars in the field, Australia, but there's no sheep. Australia itself, or there are sheep that cross the road at the start. Of the oh, no, that's true, yes, in the ad. Australia is not terrifying in this movie. Australia is quite pretty. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. At least you're yeah. in the daytime. <clears throat> well, yeah. Except for this little part of it. <laughs> Except the creepy You just mentioned town. the music. I noticed the music was by Bruce Smeaton, who also did Picnic at Hanging Rock, a town like Alice, and Roxanne. Oh, really? Yeah. I love that movie. Wow. (laughs) That's such a bizarre film. That's actually, you know, that's really interesting because there are a couple of sequences thinking about it now where you're watching establishing shots of the Aspen town in Roxanne that have a very similar feel to the way they show some of the shots of the town in this one with the music playing in the background as they kind of pan across, you know, the lovely vista. Well, it looks like a lovely vista of a nice town nestled in the the valleys. But, uh, yeah, that's really cool. I do know that it was the one thing that won an award for this movie. Oh, was it? it uh, he won yeah, the no, AFI Best Original Score in 1975. Yeah. Hmm. We were talking the other day, another friend and I, the, the interesting position a composer, the musician, has in terms of scoring oh. a movie in that they have to do really badly before someone notes and remembers how bad they are. Well, just like the mm. editor, really? Yeah, exactly, yeah. But on the other hand, when they're good, you do remember is the one yeah. the composer has. Because you watch a bad movie, you'll curse the director, you'll curse the actors, might even curse the writers, but if it had a dodgy score, you'll just go, oh, the music was crap, you probably won't even look at who composed it. But if it had a really good score, and you'll think, oh, who wrote this? Well, that's what happened on this one to me. I heard the sound come up and thought, well, that that could very much be Peter Hanging Rock, and then looked at it up and it was the same person. Which makes sense, because Peter Weird does tend to keep a, a sort of a rogues gallery of people with him from, obviously, you know, 
Terry Camilleri as an actor in the in Truman Show to soundtracks. Because what I was going to say is the Truman Show was really a stick out for me on that score, which is that the movie was kind of cool, but with the music in the background for the for right. Truman Show is amazing. Yeah. It's so good. So, yeah, you're right. A, it's a bit like special effects, I suppose. The best ones are ones you don't really notice, and unless the soundtrack is particularly bad, a good soundtrack kind of vanishes into the background. Although that said, he crosses a bunch of genres in this film because there's a sequence which is clearly meant to be the Wild West standoff where he's there with the harmonica and then they score in a French ballad at the very, very end. Well, it's the at Paris. Funnily enough. So, yeah, so it does bounce around a little bit, but he does a good job. And that piece of music that plays when they set fire to the car that they crash after um, Arthur's come to town. In so the, what the, the closest to the jag, the, square, the, yeah. the jag, the jag. <laughs> um, yeah, because I actually I hadn't really registered it when I watched the full film. When I was watching the cars that eat people, I remember thinking, "Oh wow!" Because I, I, they mucked around with the soundtrack and everything on that edit, and I'm like, "Oh, this is a really interesting piece of music to play during here." Mm-hmm. I wonder if they did that on the original, and they did, and it's this really nice piece, and it's almost as if, again, to jump into what was intended, it's almost as if. All of the nastiness you see before, you know, they descend on the body of the car and you get the old lady and everyone kind of hacking it. And then at the very end, they're kind of absolving, they're cleaning themselves of it by burning what's left. And it becomes this really quite pleasant, tinkly, tinkly bit of music that's at the end. They don't give much of an indication of how many cars go through there. Mm. But Bruce Spence, well, Charlie, has his little mobile and it's got seven, eight jag hood ornaments on it. And that's just Jag, so they must be going through quite a few. There must be a much larger car graveyard somewhere outside Yeah. I was actually listening to someone talking about this, and apparently, because the one thing I noticed about the movie was that it wasn't really heavy in exposition. You have to basically extrapolate a heck of a lot. In fact, I thought for a while it was a completely expositionless film, but apparently that moment where he holds up the Jaguars if you rewatch it, you realise it's kind of the moment that Arthur finally realises just on. how significant it is. He's kind of already aware that it's a bit off. Mm. But for them to have, as you say, that many specifically Jaguar hood ornaments, and I believe even back in the 70s, given that Jag was actually, there was an Australian division of Jaguar, they weren't a common car. No. To have that many, yeah, they've been doing this for a while. Even if every second weekend another Alpine Coca-Cola advert of a car comes trundling through and hurls itself down. It really bugged me when Arthur's in hospital talking to Charlie. I I think that's what it is. And Charlie says, you're lucky you're not full veg or whatever. Um, The caravan. Oh, sorry, Daryl. Daryl. Talking to Arthur. Because the caravan absorbed most of the impact. How does that work? The caravan's behind you. The caravan did not absorb most of the impact. The caravan's going to land on you and make more impact. (laughs) Yeah, okay, that wasn't just me. Yeah, no, I remember thinking, he didn't reverse down the hill. No, exactly. Yeah, mind you, it's fibs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, this is true. Well, you see, that's the other thing, too. Why did they keep Arthur? I was just thinking Because no one leaves Paris. I was just thinking that just now. And I'm guessing there are people who are messed up and the doctor gets to do their experiments on. Every so often they get one who is good enough shape to survive and keep surviving. And they use them to basically keep up the population of the town. Remember the mayor's children children are also not biologically theirs? No, that's right. Mm. 
So and the you... daughter's got a scar suggesting that she's Hillary. Well, yeah. it actually says in the film that they were orphans from an accident. Oh yes, yeah. So it's almost as though this town can't make its own new people. Though I don't know why that would be, but between Arthur and the children, you start to wonder. You have to let some through because you need people for the town. It's just one of the Arthur's resources. Arthur's already you... complicit. He's yeah. already killed two people in a car. He takes responsibility for his brother's death, but the mm. reason he's not driving is because he killed an old man. Mm. And I think the mayor thinks that's what we can use to keep you in line. Oh, You've done yeah. this before. You're already at fault. What's the difference? I've just realised. Mm-hmm. This is the movie Cars, what? the Disney film. <laughs> How? The guy has an accident and ends up in a small town that can only survive off the fact that cars come through their town. Fuck. And he can't leave. (laughs) (laughs) Disney's just removed the bits about eating Paris and everything's fine. Um, You know what else it is kind of like? Hot fuzz. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, God, yes. Yes. I completely got that mayor, the mayoral structure, that kind of upper-level structure Mm -hmm. of the elders. I think they were even called the elders at one point. Are they referenced as the elders or just... I don't think so. Maybe not. But it's not uncommon for that to actually be what they were called in real towns, so... Just the, yeah. Yeah, neighbourhood watch. And that's, yeah, and that's what I meant when I was like, I think that the hold that Len, uh, John Mullion's character, has is a very tenuous one, is he is very much trying to keep it there for the greater good. The, the greater, greater good. good. And he is not, yeah, and he's holding on in that same way that Edward Woodward's character is in um, uh, in, in Hot Fuzz. Yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of town. And, in fact, that's what I said. It reminded me of The Wicker Man, another movie with Edward Woodward, where a guy turns up in this town where everything's really weird and strange. Yeah, completely agree with you on that score. So it's, it's Cars meets Hot Fuzz. Mad Hot Fuzz. <laughs> Wait, I think that's a different film. The mad, the mad hot fuzz of Doctor Moreau. Um, <laughs> I, I had another review that said, "If you enjoyed David Lynch's Dune and you liked oh. Cars, <laughs> you'll enjoy this movie." Jesus, they actually reference Cars in that movie, did they? Excellent, because I only, I literally only just put two and two together on the whole getting stuck in a small town that lives off traffic that doesn't come anymore. So to Nazism, yes. So one of the cars has backwards and forwards swastikas on it. Yes. Uh, yep, I remember that. Uh, was that just because this person wouldn't know, the youth in question wouldn't know how to put one swastika? So he, for me, here's another dive. So I do also think the movie was a commentary on the youth. So that oh, early fuck, 70s. No, no. <laughs> I know, right? But yeah, that late 60s, early 70s uprising of a culture that never really existed before. And of course, you saw it in things like American Graffiti and The Clockwork Orange, you know. People were genuinely frightened of the kids. Yes. And I think having Nazi symbols is just an example of it's It's like, you know, if you want to see an 80s movie, you know, oh, they're playing rock and roll or beatboxing or doing that breaking dance or you know, something well, I don't that would have... I also thought the Doctor was kind of Dr. Mengele and then they give Arthur this position of authority and he gets his yeah, the arm Nazi band. armband. <laughs> Not Nazi, obviously, but it certainly looked at And with his brown <laughs> uniform that he had with this... Yeah, yeah, I very definitely got Nazi overtones with that whole outfit, the but special I black armband. I just don't know why. Yeah, and again, I don't know if it was intended or not, but I, I definitely got oh, a Nazi. I got a, a real stormtrooper feel, Nazi stormtrooper feel not the from ones. <laughs> not the ones that kept missing. Yeah, I very much got that impression from his outfit and his uniform too. That and and again, another one of those things of like you know how far would people go just because they're told to by someone in power. Hmm. And, oh, and speaking of when they give him that armband, I loved that moment where they're all sitting there and they've got the half-drunk beers in the town hall 
And John Mallion's like now... And the now, overly sexy picture of the Queen on the wall. <laughs> yes. Which... That wasn't just me, right? She was overly sexy. Well, <laughs> I didn't get that impression, but she was... Yeah, the, the, the Queen... I mean, because I, I can remember from the 80s, you know, there'd always be a Queen... I mean, I did scouts. I did Cubs and Scouts. There was always a picture of the Queen in the town hall, you know, between the flags. Oh, yeah, um, there are definitely small towns, that, rural towns in Australia that look like this... Through to well, I imagine they're still like. Oh god, yeah, yeah. yeah, I I would still not be terribly surprised to see a picture of the Queen in a small town hall. Yeah, in fact, I can remember thinking, you know, I can imagine driving to Goulburn and seeing large, you know, probably refilming this in Goulburn, and a lot of the sets would look the same. What's the minimum size of a town before you can have a mayor? Do you really need a mayor for 150 folk? I don't know. I don't know. Is there a minimum size or? I don't know. Maybe it's something to do with the definition of a town. <laughs> Sorry, that was just a... Um... I mean, I know there's technical definitions of city and what have you. Of course. You, but I don't know if the mayor is just if everyone says you're in charge now, that makes you the mayor, regardless yeah. of how many of you there are. Mm. Maybe and... you just have the best cast area. <laughs> well, that was the other thing, too. Did you notice that every radio in town is a cast area? Yep. Which, again, I... I can understand the town now lives on cars. That makes sense. And I recognise But how did it start? Yeah. And where did all the stuff go that you needed to replace it with car stereos and hubcaps and... It almost needed to be set later than it is because if this was set decades into this process, you could say that the other stuff simply broke down over time and everything ran out and a couple of generations of unfortunate travellers have replaced everything. But there wasn't quite as much time for that to happen by 1974. Because they've only got a couple of people in the whole town that would actually earn a wage. I'm mm. assuming the mayor does. <clears throat> then there's the doctor and possibly the parking superintendent. Mm. But very few of them seem to actually have a job that would pay money, so they rely on the barter system. Yeah, which is, you know, where you see the guy, you know, getting a pair of shoes in lieu of food, which he then, you know, he takes the food. And somehow they unconsciously know exactly how much it's oh, yes. worth. As it's like a jacket to... and shoes is like one small tin of beans. Damn, we're going to have to kill some more people. Yeah, I reckon. Because that was the thing, because, I mean, having seen the barter system in, say, Force Awakens, I guess, is probably the most recent example where, you know, she's handing over chunks of, of Star Destroyer for portions. portions. And, yeah, and the person who's receiving it is actually explaining every time how much it's worth. Yeah. They can somehow psychically they can just say know. Anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is why Daryl has a massive tin of dog food behind him and a banana. I'd love Did to know. He? Yeah, well, he was eating a banana when he was talking to Arthur. Oh, yeah, no, he had like he, he had, had this... two giant hands of bananas. Yeah, many hands of bananas. And it was one of the recent crashes a fruit truck? I did, well, I couldn't work out where it's bananas so came handy. from. Because this but is the thing: you can't make food out of bits of cars. No, no, not I'm aware of. <laughs> and I don't think even if the town only has 150 or so people, you would have to have a lot of crashes. Of cars usually have only one or two people in them. Because mm. yeah. they said they used to get a lot of caravans, but they don't any longer, and it's mm. certainly not going to be a major trucking route. Yeah, and this is that whole power structure again where the mayor stands and watches them descend, almost like carrion birds on mm. the jag, and he's passed the radio as his kind of accepted spoils. And that's actually when Charlie, Bruce Spencer's character, finally loses it because he gets angry about the fact that he's the one who keeps catching them and they never give him anything, so he then... Takes out the reverend in his little mini. And puts his collar on straight away. So creepy. And that's when the mayor loses his crap. Yeah, because he's being anti-religious. It's like, this is not what one does in a... You religious bastard or something. I got this one. This one's mine. 
You sprouts. You irreligious bat! They took a long time to decide they were going to be a sweary movie. I think we were about three quarters of the way through before someone starts to say fuck, and then all of a sudden yeah. it's fucking this and fucking that at the very end. So I didn't notice, but I, I think there talk was... like that. Mm. <laughs> I, I wonder if the pastor had been there long enough that he was sort of a real person to the mayor, as well as the religious thing. I got the impression he hadn't. I thought it was because that Arthur wanted to speak to the reverend. Yeah, but I got the impression the mayor didn't condone killing the pastor because he goes off at Charlie about it. Oh, but also oh. it's not just, it's not a car accident. Charlie shoots him. Yeah. That's a very different yeah. scenario than they're used to. And like, he'd be all queen and so you, queen, country and God. So you're, so you're a thing you just don't do. Yeah, you don't shoot the priest. Uh, yeah. So that's what I was going to say. So you're, you're suspecting a who will rid me of this troublesome priest type thing where maybe the mayor has let it be known that he's angry at the priest but doesn't want anything done and then Charlie is... Well, certainly doesn't want this talk. person shot. Yes, or beheaded. Shot is hard to answer for. Actually, the reverend's head is completely blown yes, off, it isn't is. it? So it's almost it almost is a who will rid me of this troublesome priest because mm-hmm. the mayor basically comply or is not happy. Mm. And then the next we see is that Charlie may be in the role of is it Thomas a Beckett or Thomas Beckett? I can never remember which one it was. But he basically yeah went to the church and then cleaved off the priest's head. And then, yeah, has like, that's not quite what I meant. I was just having a bit, I was just venting, damn it. But yeah, that, that Charlie finally kind of snaps a little bit and says, I want my spoils. Yeah, but no, I kind of got the impression that the priest was sort of newish. So there's a couple of mm. people that appear in the town briefly, the insurance assessor at the very start, yeah. where they have that fantastic papier mache children's model of the hill and a Hot Wheels, <laughs> a Hot Wheels car to simulate the accident. Why do they even? have that wasn't that your first thought who just has that sitting around there is a person who obviously his entire job in that town is to make shitty models because I he's think... made the shitty he's made the shitty road they nearby just someone's kids it, well maybe that's what it was and then they got the shitty um town the the new town that they're trying to decide whether or not to put the particular veranda posts out the front of yeah someone's basically just got a lot of plaster of paris yeah and a few toothpicks yeah that was really awesome even though this one doesn't literally have the there are no police trope, it certainly has the there are no forensics trope. Oh, yeah, very well, much so. Well, there is a police. It's just yeah, that's what S&M it's... cosplay Colonel Hogan. <laughs> I, it, it does have police, but not one that's actually too well, interested in following up that particular law. Yeah. Right at the end, he the copper says to the mayor that he's going to have to report on the police death. Yeah, on the, on the reverend's death. Yeah. yeah. And that was, a, again, a very real, we don't want the outside you know, coming mm. to our, our little town. And, in fact, funnily enough, I thought that had happened because when when the Reverend had been killed and then you actually, the next sequence you see, I think, is John Malian staring at this convoy of a police car and an ambulance and mm. I thought, well, here's the outside world come to Paris. Oh. But in actual fact, they're all just the well, local yeah, bits and pieces. Yeah, otherwise they would have gotten there ridiculously quickly. Well, yeah. Sorry, yeah. So so the, the two outsiders I really saw was the, you know, other than Arthur, obviously, was the insurance assessor and the priest, he's still very new because mm. he's still saying, you know, you could get that road fixed. So I guess it's one of those... And he's still calling the town new. Yeah, yeah. So yes. he's he's obviously been rotated into the church as whatever mm. the father Hence why he's late for and, his sermon. Mm, in Mr Bean's car. He's a tall man. He does not look like he enjoys driving Very that tall man from Mini. But it was... It was a very recognisable car. Yes, yep. it was perfect. And to those of senior audience who don't recognise cars so easily will recognise that's the red mini, that's the yeah. the priest's car. And it, it's it's funny because 
it's very much a priest's car too. I don't know what it is in my head, but I imagine that a, a little red mini is sort of the kind of car you would imagine a priest to have. It's a very, very humble motor vehicle as opposed to Jags mm. and Holdens. And It gets from A to B and it's not flashy. Yeah. It's going to be very functional. Mm. Now, we just mentioned the height of the police, of, of the reverend, sorry. I don't know the height of um, Terry Camilleri who played Arthur, but in so many shots, like next to the mayor and next to some of the next to someone like Daryl, is he actually shot standing in a hole? Because I don't I, think he's that short. It's just people tower over him. I think there was a reason Terry Camilleri was asked to play Napoleon, even though we know oh, that the, the, oh, yes, the Napoleon yes. well, he is a short, short actor. Yeah, okay. I, I very definitely because that was very, very much used to emphasise his youth, whereas they could have just mm. gotten someone who had hair younger. <laughs> Yeah, there was some... In this movie, you can really see that people used to look older at a given stage than they do now. Mm. Oh, that's very true. I mean, like, the actor playing... Who was playing the man? The guy playing the man. John Malliam. Yeah, he's about our age. He looks like our dads. Oh, yeah, I've... Whoa, really? God. Well, I've spoken about this before with Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, when he was in the first Die Hard, was... 30-something, like really young, yeah. significantly younger than anybody that I tend to hang around with these days, and he's still, even in that movie, looks in like my dad. One. Yeah. Yeah. So, a dad, not your dad. Not my dad. No. no. Sorry, dad. But a dad. <laughs> <laughs> I had no doubt my dad would go crawling through a, a ventilation duct to save me. So, yeah. But yeah, no, there very much was that impression of older people than being mm. generally old. But Terry Camilleri is so softly spoken in this movie. Yeah. Which I guess was his character. Well, also, you know, he's broken. Yeah, we, yeah. He only really starts speaking after he, well, he's caused this death that he believes he caused. Yeah. So, yeah, he's he's broken, he's small, and that's why mm. the mayor thinks he can be manipulated. Yeah. And also, weirdly, he feels, like, obliged to everyone because he says in, in the big discussion part that his brother hated him. And in yes. fact, interestingly, it was after I, I then rewatched it a second time. It's his brother that gets out and joins that job line at the very start, oh, yeah, right. while yeah, he, he sits in the too. background. Yes. And there's even at the very beginning, the very first shot you have of them, where they're parked on the side of the road, and he's eating. You know, they're both. You know, the the brothers doing something in the foreground, and he's eating on the steps of the trailer. I think there's a look that he casts, which is actually that his brother cast to Terry's character to Arthur that's almost, you know, doesn't like it. So how old is Arthur meant to be then? I would say he's 17 going on 48. Yeah, Uh, right. It's really hard to tell. This is the thing. It's it's what we were just talking about. Yeah. The actor's 25. By modern standards, he does not look 25. No. 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 And part of it's the comb over. I think some people would just accept it. Yeah, that's it. My brother was born by 25. Yeah, and but then you accept it. You you shave it all off and you don't do the comb over. But that's just, I mean, that could be 70s hairstyles too. So. There's that too. Yeah. They definitely all look like they're very 70s people. <laughs> well, I only found out from an interview that Bruce Spencer's 70 or 71 this year. Yeah. So, hmm. I didn't know his actual age, but I was kind of going with the maths. He's been around that long. That yeah. He must have clocked up the years sooner or later. Yeah, pretty much. He's pretty much ridden the entire wave of Ozploitation movies. <laughs> That's very really cool. So. He's the face of Ozploitation. I yeah. so would love to interview Bruce Spence or talk to Bruce Spence sometimes. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a- yeah. And we were talking before about does Blue World Order count as Ozploitation? Well, there's at least one credential it has. Sam Skippy. Yep, absolutely <laughs> it does. Well, it's two because well, all we've got Jack Thompson. Maybe we don't divide Ozploitation. It's just, is Bruce Spence in it? 
then yes. Then yes, it <laughs> is an exploitation. That sounds great. Australia. I think we were talking last time is that there's going to be certain actors that just keep cropping up, partly yeah. because that's the way a smaller film industry works in general, but I think partly because you just get that, I don't say stank, that's the wrong word, but you get that, <laughs> I know, you get that aroma or that air oh, of a particular... <laughs> Oh, I don't know exactly what I mean, but you know, in a vibe, it's the vibe of the, the thing. The vibe of the thing. It's the Marbo. Um, <laughs> actually, and speaking of Marbo, let's discuss oh, the elephant God. that's not in the room. Uh huh. Yeah, it's outside of the lawn, made of concrete. Yeah, which is the complete la- well, that the complete lack of any actual Aboriginals in this, and only oh, I'm two not surprised by references. No, it completely is of its era. But the- <laughs> how many Aboriginals in Blue World Order? Just the most recent film we're talking about. Yeah, but... Just mm, pick, you know, any... But this is the thing. I think Blue World Order isn't actually set in a... Oh, no, it is set in the Southern Hemisphere. It's set in Canberra, dude. Yeah. No, seriously, we ignore our black people here. No, we do. This is nothing to do with 1974. You're right. It's not the cast that ate Paris. It's Australian racism. I will... Yes, it is inherent racism because I will say that there are... Sorry, Shay, I'm not calling you racist. No. Fuck, that came out terribly. There are two Aboriginals in this movie, if you want to class it as the entirety of their appearance. One of them is the appalling Piccaninny statue that the mayor's got on the front lawn, which he's so angry about having been broken by the cars when they drive through his front lawn. Again, I'm thinking maybe the third or fourth time they've done it because the house has already been repaired. Why does everything, every house being repaired all the time? It's the youth. But the second Aboriginal appearance is, of course, one of the veggies is made up as an Aboriginal at the end. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. You know, after Chinaman comes wandering through the party. Oh, God, yeah. So there are some moments which just, I, oh, cringed. And like the previous movie, and I'm sure like many others will see, I'm so happy that those sequences make me so uncomfortable. I would hate Ooh. to be in an era where that kind of stuff is just normal. Anyway, sorry, yes. Well, they make Arthur the parking superintendent. The Nazi intendant. <laughs> <laughs> the parking Nazi. You've got more land than people who cares about parking in they a tiny don't. town like that. They Why do we need this position? Further attempts to quash his will. Oh. oh. He is not very good at telling his people to move on. He right. has some success... With Daryl, uh-huh, and then uh-huh. shortly afterwards, everyone brings their Frankenmobiles out into the street, and it's just little Arthur's going, Oh, you guys, you can't really park mm. here. And that's obviously not going to work. Yeah. And can I say, Daryl's really good about it. Yeah, no worries, all right, yeah. Oh, how are you doing? Everyone's so friendly no, to each other, Darryl but then he gets really pissed. Yeah. The first time that Arthur wants Daryl to move the car, Daryl waits until he gets some kind of signal from two other cars in the background. Yeah. But it's obviously a major problem. The mayor and company already know it's a major problem that there is all this car problem mm. going on in the car. Yeah, going the, the town. The problem isn't parking, though, is it? Yeah, but they they know that it results in cars being where they ostensibly shouldn't. Yeah. And they know that Arthur is going to have no success mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with this, but he's just going to have his will crossed further and further because each time he's going to fail. Yeah. On the 1% chance he is successful then great, they've managed to get their hooks into the youth, but that's yeah. really not going to happen. So yeah, basically a win-win right. situation. Either Arthur fixes the problem or it's just something else that's going to just... And then as the mayor, he comes running home to me yeah. and gives so, me more control. So what is the mayor's relationship with Arthur? So, so this is what weirded me out. They let him live. 
and we've we've seen from the guy that is dragged to the the operating table oh, afterwards. Oh yeah, what was that? That it's not just because he is completely okay. No. Because the other guy's pretty much okay. He's, he's walking, just got a few wounds. Speaking. Yeah, and obviously Arthur was wounded a little bit because he's or injured a little bit. <laughs> so then they bring him into the home. The mayor's decided he's going to keep him as a pet. Yeah. Then. He says, okay, now you need to leave. Treats him very much like a recalcitrant son. Says, okay, you've got to get your own place. And he's like, I thought I could live here. And he's like, no, you need to, you know, you can be put up at the pub. Then he sees him about to talk to the reverend. So he says, yeah, I need a son. I thought for a second there, there was some (laughs) weird semi-sexual tension between the wives. Oh, I thought he's going to spill Um, his stories to the outside. I better keep him in check. Arthur, I wanted to talk to you today. I wanted to talk to you very seriously. I'm a great family man. I always have been. I love my family and I've always taught them to be frank and to be honest. I would like to talk about last night. Last night, when I saw you with Jeanette, I realized there was something missing in our family. A son. A son? Yes. Yes, I feel with you that uh, that I could say anything. And uh, I would like to think that you could me. Because after all, I mean that's what uh, that's what families are about. And oh Beth, oh, she's she's mad about you. Oh, I'm going to have to watch you or uh, or she'll spoil you. Uh, what I would like you to do is I would like you to settle here permanently and and become part of our family. Part of my family. That means I stay with your family. That's right. Okay. I never had a real family. There's one thing that close families don't do. They don't talk to outsiders like uh, Ted Mulray. They keep themselves to themselves. But I just don't know whether... Because John Malian, at the very, very end, he very clearly is a, is a man who's totally broken. He's lost his town. Everything he thought he was trying to kind of hold up has crashed. Mm. And I kind of got part of it was the last bit was the loss of Arthur driving away. Because there's no way he can keep any of it secret. So it's not like Arthur's getting away from town is going to be a problem. But he, he kind of yells at him like a recalcitrant son. So does he consider him his son? Does he consider him a friend? Does he consider him a pet? He doesn't consider him a friend. No. I he guess. certainly doesn't consider him an equal. No. I get the idea, partly from one of the town hall meetings, that every so often there's a victim survivor who they think has something in them that makes them a worthy inhabitant of the town. Yeah. The X Factor. Either people aren't having babies, or if they are, they're still babies and aren't going to be in any kind of position to do anything for a good many mm. years. So they need to bring in some of these people to beef up the adult population of the town and actually keep things running. Yeah. And I don't know how they make this assessment because he's unconscious. Yeah. But I think every so often they think, this is someone we can work with, or it's by subjugation or whether it's because they're 
clever enough, we can work with them or whatever, mm. that they said, this one will become a Parisian. Mm. And I got that impression from the town meeting because someone said, oh, what are we going to do about our visitor? Yeah. Or he's going to become a Parisian. And you get the impression that this is something that can but will not necessarily happen. Mm. Even before that, the mayor says, we're keeping him. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the thing, oh, that phrase, yeah. we're keeping him. And the, the doctor, I think, right at the very start, when Daryl says, um, you know, so what should I do? Should we go to the caravan and get all the stuff out from inside? And then the doctor says, no, yes. Daryl, I said, he's going to become a Parisian. Yes. So, yeah, so obviously if you if you assume that the doctor and the mayor are on a similar kind of a sort of power level, then, yeah, the decision has definitely been made higher up as been made in the town. All meetings. Did you have any thoughts on the ongoing experimentation of the <clears throat> patients? Because their heads are always bandaged. Now, I get if you have a head injury, your head is bandaged. It doesn't stay that way for long. So how much ongoing work and operations is happening in this hospital? Right. Just two more things. One, the doctor. Now, I get my orders from him and you get your orders from me, right? Right, OK. And the other thing is the patients. Now, most of the people here are accident victims. So what you got are your veggies. Yeah, now these are people who've been in accidents that are so bad that their minds all get scrambled up like scrambled eggs, right? Yeah. In any case, you've got your four veggies, uh, but I doubt if you'll actually see them. I, I don't think you'll have much to do with them, no. And then there's your half veggies and your quarter veggies. Like Leslie here. He used to be a bank manager. Did you, Leslie, eh? All right. Cup of tea, eh? Yes, right. I think what he said to Arthur was technically true. <laughs> that <laughs> he's he experimenting. Does a lot of psychological and mental experimentation. You see, out here in the country, well, we get far more opportunity to do experimental work in the field of surgery and psychiatry than your city expert. This is where the really exciting work is being done. Just some mm. of that is more black and decorate. Yes. <laughs> Like a decory, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can. I just take two seconds to say how fucking creepy is is a rice bubble box that's covered in eyes. Yes, that costume when that that, that one walked through the door is freaking amazing. But yeah, all those weird semi veggies that are leaning against the windows and staring mm. and stuff. So strange. In fact, okay. maybe the doctor is someone who did come into town, but. Is someone who, rather than being subjugated ah. by the mayor, they actually reached an agreement. Sort of, I've got no motivation to go and grass you up and tell you what's go- tell you what's going on here. On the other hand, I could use somewhere to do my experiments and a fresh supply of subjects to do them on. Yeah. yeah okay, so all those works. all those meaty bits you keep doing X, Y, or Z with up until now. Mm. Let's play around with them. Yeah. Mm. Which again, you know, how did we just psychologically discover that Arthur was fine to stay? But yeah. Yeah, that again, it seemed like another, and this is what I'm, I mean when I say that the movie's very subversive, is that that, that could be a plot in and of itself. Town getting experimental people, you could park, mm. no pun intended, all the car <laughs> stuff aside, and just say, here is a town where they experiment on people, and, you mm. know, the big reveal is he finally goes up to the second level in the hospital, and there they all are, and, and it's, it's, it's dropped. It's not really expanded beyond his bunch of people that are now dancing in the costume party. Mm, mm. But I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that, yeah, Peter Weir probably genuinely wanted to say, well, it's not one of this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. You can't really corner this movie into any one thing. It's not a slasher pick, it's not pick, it's not a a science, you know, mad scientist movie or whatever it is, what it is. And that's one of the reasons it didn't make a whole bunch of money back in the day, because mm. they didn't know how to market it. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, they tried to get an opening at 
Khan. Apparently. And were rejected, but still open, but not on the circuit, not on the film festival. Yeah, and apparently the reception from people who watched it was great. Everyone yes. loved it. And uh, not Val Morgan, uh, Village Roadshow mm-hmm. said, uh, we're going to release it. And they pulled out, I think. And Roger Corman said he was going to, to release it. I mean, Roger Corman famously the B-grade scene. I don't know if it was that. Apparently he was right down to a full negotiation. Okay. In fact, it was really funny because an interview I heard with one of the producers in particular is I think he threw a few noses out of joint because he then released a film called Death Race 2000. Oh, yeah. Which mm. I haven't actually seen yet, but apparently it follows a lot of the similar beats to this movie. And they kind of feel a bit like he ripped them off. So he basically just kept them on side to uh-huh. kind of really, you know, d- deconstruct the movie and put it back together the way he wanted it. And then he released an entire different film. But, yeah, it, it looked like it was all good. It only cost 250000 to make, which, you know, in comparison to, was it five point something million for Razorback? Oh, that was, was, yeah, that was not a small um, amount. Yeah, this was going to be a relatively sort of tight budget film that was scheduled and slated to make a hell of a lot and just never took off. Although it is now a cult hit, so I'm pretty sure they've made their money back and it all keeps trickling in. Yeah, well, I mean, now you can pitch it as here's this weird cult hit from 1974. Well, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Whereas there was not so much of an art house or non-traditional genre circuit in 1974. Mm. Yeah. They certainly couldn't go, well, you'll build an audience on video and streaming or anything mm. like that. And to pitch it as a straightforward horror movie... Well, if you sold that and you went and saw this, you'd think, this wasn't mm. the movie I was... Expecting. Yeah. I it certainly wasn't... wasn't going to be the movie people were expecting from the movie posters and things with a massive spiky Vida Beetle front and centre. No. Yeah, one of the poster artists really didn't get the memo. It's actually have images of Paris, France being developed. <laughs> <from the people. laughs> Excellent. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, because it's really interesting to see where it sits in the, in the scope. So I put a couple of notes on this one. So... Wake in Fright, which this movie has got some very similar beats of, you know, a guy coming to a town that's very dystopian in just in the yeah, nature of what it is. Yeah, but Stranger coming to a weird small town is a fairly common. Yeah, thing. absolutely. Um, so that it's was a genre in itself. On yeah, very much so. So that was 1971. This movie was 74. Same year I was born, by the way. Mad Max didn't Can actually come out until 1979. So this was definitely not influenced by. And then you look at the other movies from around the world that I remember thinking this seems a lot like X, Y, and Z. Certainly Clockwork Orange, The Wicker Man, and American Graffiti had all come out before it. American Graffiti and The Wicker Man were both 1973. Clockwork Orange was 1971. But then Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the same year that this one was released. So they wouldn't have seen it. 74, yeah. Is it really? So, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. In some ways, I'm really... I think this one stands alone or stands as its own film, not really overly influenced by anything else. Whereas, you know, Razorback, we we were pretty comfortable, was at least partly influenced by Jaws. Yes. Um, Yeah, and maybe it's because it is the first of its kind that it is so disjointed, I guess. That's what I kind of really took away from it, is that it really didn't feel like any one type of movie. And as part of what I was saying before, earlier about there being a darker film bubbling below the surface of this one. Are there kind of patches reminding us of other movies? Granted, the outsider coming to the weird small town, that could be anything. That's every other classic British horror film. But once you get to the everything here is made of remnants of car crashes thing, and then that becomes... Sonic Green has VWs. Sonic Green is jazz. 
moreover, even though that doesn't disappear, it doesn't really factor into the rest of the story. Yeah, no. If you just had, this is a freaky ass little town and Arthur eventually breaks free from Lynch at all, it wouldn't actually damage the story much. Mm. And in fact, that's the thing. When I first watched it again recently, I'm like, well, this was never one film. This was bad because it wasn't an X, it wasn't a Y, it wasn't a Z. And I remember thinking, if you just re-edited it, if you got a bit more of this or a bit more of that, you could make it a creepy town in the middle of nowhere. You could make it or whatever. But I actually now, having thought about it and thought about the effect it had, kind of like the fact that it's not any one thing but it's this nice little mishmash so you can you can more or less think of it as anything you can take it away as a hell you can take it away as a a story about a man who learns to drive again <laughs> that's a remarkably innocent reading yeah yes. yeah it's, it's, it's this wonderful that's very disney that's crying out for those recut trailers you know where they change the genre of film doing a fan trailer like the one that does the wicker man remake as a romantic comedy oh, yes Arthur had problems. Fortunately, he met a loving community, someone willing to take him on as his son and learn to drive again. So let's talk about the Mad Max bit. because mm-hmm. Which bit? The bit the which Max then Max. goes Mad Max at the end. That that really bizarre switch. Because I don't know, to you, I mean, that was... Oh, to, you, to me, that did seem like almost a, a massive tonal shift. Okay, you're going to have to tell me what specifically... What Basically, the right night now. of the party. So, okay, yep. so the party happens. The it's already ball. feeling very, very weird. And then the kids go full crazy and basically destroy the town. Kids, we're still calling the kids, but they don't have parents. Not that we know. Yeah. Because there's no parents pulling them to the line. There's no parents taking them to church. And interestingly... Interestingly, Daryl is at church. Daryl yeah, is at church. Yeah, he is, yeah. Young, but he's also the only one of the youth that has a job. Yeah. Daryl's straddling that same area, like and- Arthur. And you get the impression he's very much the leader of the gang of kids too, because he's the one who's front and center in this in the, in the Wild West standoff yes. that they have on the streets. But the bit where basically they stop being the kids and become the cars, because I think, because so they burn Daryl's car and he loses it. Yes, and the tow truck guy or the guy who goes and sabotages the road says the cars are angry. Yeah, yeah. The, the actual phrase is it's the cars. They're a bit upset over the burning. Yes. Which completely dehumanises them as kids and they just become the cars that they're not parrot. And I love it. Well, frequently yeah. when the kids are driving, we can't see them. No. Yeah, we just see the cars. Yeah. The animal noises weren't as overt in the proper one versus the cars that if you watch the cars that eat people you'd be forgiven for thinking the entire second half is jurassic park car version because it's all roars and animal noises and screeching whereas there are sequences i think where peter weir stuck that sound effect into the engine noise but you do still get the engine noise over the top so it's that kind of make it scary ish whereas and it's probably meant to just sort of evoke the wild animal yeah yeah you know and it only i think it happens you know with close-up of of either a cutting blade or whenever they painted the kind of the Spitfire type teeth on the side of the car, as opposed to, yeah, let's pretend that they're genuinely real. Although I did get then that impression, the bit, which was one other thing was like kind of thinking Lord of the Flies stuck in my head when that guy picks up the door of his car and goes to spear one of the other vehicles. It's yes, like, <laughs> the shield um, and spear. Was that, it's almost like at that point the kid's, become just the insides of the cars. We're calling them the kids, and I think we're wrong. I think we, we should, should be, be calling, calling them, them the cars. cars. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. Calling them kids and youth felt wrong all through this, and I think that's why. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's really – because that could be – I mean, again, it's early 70s. That could be a gang name. It could be like the – what was the what were the two the two big gangs in this, in Sydney? Uh, the, 
not the Crips. Oh Lord! No, no, the the street gangs. The the um. Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember. Um, or maybe it's even a bit earlier than that. But there were, you know, it's a bit like the Crips or the, you know, it could be just a gang name, you know, the yeah. Cars. But it is also pretty much their entire identity. You know, the youth really got nothing is, else it? to do. Yeah, they've got nothing else to do, so they just live and breathe car culture, which. Yeah. And Arthur and Daryl at church at work, and we're taking a view that he's sort of an almost grown-up. Mm. We don't see them indulging in anything else. No. They're not, you know, playing sport or... Well, Daryl's down the pub with the other grown-ups, isn't he, having a pint? There's one scene that's in a pub. I thought Daryl might have been in it. Oh, yeah, they're sitting there listening to the radio, which and is... And the car crash comes in. Yeah. <laughs> this is Max's contribution. You were right there, buddy. So what did you think of Cars, Max? <laughs> Jesus, Max. So this is, if, if you wanted to do that deep dive about, you know, the let's take the elders as the parents and the cars as the kids of the parents, that era where yes. they're losing track of the their youth and that, that kind of highlighted, I think, and I don't know how, I don't know how big a, a disjoint it was from the 70s, but the sequences with John Malian sitting there smoking a pipe, reading a book, was very much that kind of nod back to that classic English heritage of being mm. Australian. Mm. You know, when you grew up watching Yes Minister and, you know, eating tea and biscuits and stuff. Did they have a TV? No. A TV in, I don't in recall ever having seen a television. Yeah, I think it was all... Nor, nor a normal stereo, just car radios. Yeah, it was all car radios. So that very much seemed to me, and it was all very brown too. Yeah, but it was the same. It was really jarring, yeah. yeah. Now, maybe it wasn't quite as big at the time, but I very, very much get that impression that if you wanted to look at it, John Malian is very much the English heritage, ABC type Australia, and the kids were BBC? very much the... Oh, BBC, sorry, type Australia. And then the kids were very much the car culture MTV up and coming. Generation. Yeah, well, kind of, yeah. That sort of... I mean, we love the fact that Australia... Or, you know, we embrace the fact Australia has a solid car culture, but the only other nation that had a really strong car culture like that of that style is America. The US. And yeah. that was where, you know, the 70s was when the American stuff was coming in and... You talk about that big, you know, the generation gap, the, the the literal generation gap, partly because you got this big selection of kids that had died in wars, so you had that literal generation gap, but the parents, the grown-up, didn't know how to talk to the kids, and you very much got the impression the elders didn't know how to interact with the cars. They just kept seeing them, and those couple of ones who are notionally the good kids, like Daryl and, like, possibly the cop who seems young. I don't know what he was meant to be at all. No. I think he was in teen grown-up was trying to sort of... Trying to still be yeah. hip with the cars. Because yeah. he does not try to not be completely offside of them, but I think his, his loyalty... Well, actually, open. he probably knows that the cars are on the town. Mm. Well, he yeah. defuses the situation. He defuses the standoff, takes Daryl yeah. and the other guy in to have a chat. Yeah. Mm. But um, on the other hand, he, he doesn't just go, no, nah, they can do what they like. Yeah. They're young and cool. Yes, yeah, so he draws the line at shooting a priest. <laughs> which is, you know, if a line must have drawn, it's not a bad... Spot. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Sorry, I've just flashed it. You said that the guy who wrote the music wrote the music for Roxanne. Yes. I suddenly remember the one other thing. I remember thinking about Roxanne when I was watching this movie. The bit where they're setting up the street for the big festival is exactly like when they're setting up the street in Roxanne for the big festival and the mayor gets really <laughs> shitty because he, he, he says it's open and then there's nobody on the street and he, he swears into the microphone. I'm oh, sorry, I just got that rando flash of that. Mm. That'll be a bit like this mayor insisting everyone has to come to the Pioneers Ball. Yeah. And did you get, maybe it's just me, did you get the impression that the mayor, because, I mean, I know that the mayor gives uh, Arthur his outfit, 
But do you all get the feeling that the mayor has almost decided what everyone else is going to wear too? Oh, I don't know. I thought because that might be more of a directorial thing, like the doctor is a magician. May- maybe, and maybe it was just the production, but everyone who was wearing a sign, it was the same type of sign on the same piece of cardboard written in the same handwriting. Oh, yeah, fair. I see what you're saying. But I don't know whether that's just maybe production limitations, like someone wrote down, okay, what they're trying to be. But it almost like the mayor says, okay, you'll wear this and you'll wear this and you'll wear this and, and by the way, come... Oh, it's all two people discussing down the pub, mm. what are you going to wear? I don't know, I'll just get a sign and write Chinaman on. It's like, mm. excellent, I'll do the same with Early Pioneer. Yeah. I will say one other thing. Yes. Um, clothing. Clothing. I don't know whether you notice or not, but the mayor gives Arthur clothing three separate times. He's a free elf. He's a free elf. Um, Arthur, okay, I actually wrote that down. I literally wrote down, Arthur is a free elf. Um, <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> where did I write that? I want to just prove. Um, oh, I can't find it. But, yeah, because he, the very first time we were introduced to the mayor, to John Malian's character, he gives Arthur a tie to attend his own brother's funeral. Yes. Then he gives him the armband in the box, well, not indirectly by, you know, through one of the other guys. And then, of course, he gives him an entire outfit at the very end to wear as this is what you will turn up to our costume ball as. He's definitely wearing something at the mayor's when he goes to town meeting. Yes. Oh, which was the other thing I was going to say about that town meeting. I love the fact that, you know, the mayor says, okay, and now let's on to parking inspector. And everyone else is like, parking inspector? What? And he said, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one person who can do this job. And they're like, oh. Here's the bloke you met five minutes ago. And he says, yeah. It's Arthur. And everyone looks really surprised, but he's like, he's the only one sitting at <laughs> yes. the meeting. How could you not see? Okay, maybe the, the well, park Well, they could have thought it went to one of, them, one of themselves. But that's the thing. Why would they think that if suddenly there's this random person that the mayor's brought that Okay, night? yeah, that's fair. Unless it's, you know, bring your kid to work, Dave. <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> could be. But, yeah, I guess... Oh, God, I, I hadn't thought about this before because I was just talking... We were talking about the mayor's relationship with Arthur. Of course, there's very few, I mean, partly the era, there's very few female characters and the only one who's there, I think she's the only major one, is the wife. Do she you only think, wanted to get to speak, I think. Yeah. Well, considering that he has a wife and two daughters, would the mayor be maybe even considering trying to groom Arthur to become the next mayor? Is that what he would want? I, am, he, I can see it. Yeah. He has no he has no male heir at this point. Some people still make a fuss about that now, and certainly back then they did, and especially if he's another generation or two back himself in other mm. values. Yeah. Because I can't really think, because that's the one thing is I, I do very definitely get the impression that the mayor wants to keep things going the way they are. You know, yeah. it's, it's not a power thing for him. It's a this is the way the town should be and we must keep the town as it is. And part of that has surely got to recognise that he's not going to live forever. don't know. Hmm. And if you can mould this guy, if you can subjugate his will, you can basically shape what's left of it into whatever you need. Mm, yeah, yeah, and all those Because we things. don't have much of a sense of time, do we? We don't know how long he's known Arthur, but it seems like a very short period. It does, yeah. And I must admit I got the impression we are only talking uh, maybe a, a couple of weeks, a week yeah. or two. I don't think there was anywhere near the disjointed level of time that we got from Razorback. No. There was no direct indications of time except for a few day-night cycles, but yeah, no, no one said And anything. we know seasons didn't change because usually it would freak me out if people are burning things out in the bush, but people were rugged up in warmer clothes, so it wasn't summer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that was actually something else that really struck me. So when I was looking at what, what had come beforehand, the mayor's car is a vehicle. Yeah, what is the mayor's car? 
It's called a DeSoto. I can't remember oh, the DeSoto. actual type. It's a DeSoto. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it says Desot on it because the O oh, is falling off the end. But the sequence, it looks really, really similar to Christine. The colour scheme and mm-hmm. everything else is very similar to Christine. And, in fact, there's the sequence where after he's spoken to the Reverend, the mayor goes after him in the car and sort of chases him through. Yeah. Yes, right. And I remember thinking, man, this is really reminiscent of Christine. But, yeah, Christine itself was only written in 1983. Yeah. So... I'm curious to know whether Stephen King will have seen this film. It just bugged me um, in, in the same way as every car thing does when there's a car. If it's chasing you down or following you and you think it might hit you and you're in a wooded area, just go down behind a damn tree. Well, Why run away in a straight line? A tree stops the car. Yeah, and that's was the thing that was really weird. Like the first time that Arthur tries to leave the town. And he gets to the point where the two that cars really are on the right. And then he just turns around and sort of walks away. Because it wouldn't have occurred to me that they were revving and trying to chase me back to what I was doing. I would have just thought, they're doing their own thing, I'll walk around. Yeah, or if I do feel that they're going to come after me, I'd get off, off the, the road. road. Yeah. And but he turns that, do the cars, the young people, have any investment in... Keeping people in town? Yeah. Yeah. They I, kept, maybe yeah. they get a bonus. <laughs> maybe that's some weird interaction between the mayor and, and Daryl that we weren't privy to. He's like the liaison between generations. Mm, yeah. Actually, that really works as a role, what you've just said. What's that? As the... a liaison between the two groups. That yeah. really works. When they drive over the mayor's front lawn that night, the thing they're shitty about is that they don't get the pics of some of the bits of the cars. You actually yeah. hear Daryl's yelling, saying, how about some tyres? You know, it's, it's a bit rough running on these steel rims. Yeah. So they're aware of the economy and they want to be a part of it. They yeah. want part of that and this is that whole disenfranchised youth again, mm-hmm. it's not that they are having a go for no reason. It's like, this is our economy. This is how we work. We want to be part of it and we want to be considered. Because they are doing all the work. Member. They are, yeah. And, again, it's sort of that of that era of the 1970s, maybe nod to Vietnam or not, you know, you send a lot of the kids away to, in the jungle to do the dirty work of the politicians and the leaders oh, back home. Oh, I like it. Mm. Oh. That was one of my deep dives. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, they're, they're really shitty that they've done all the, the – which is also what Charlie says. I mean, Charlie says it really overtly. You know, I do all the work and, and I want my fair share. This is mine. I got this one myself. And actually, again – I never done nothing wrong. Oh, you already, always did everything? Yeah. Wrong? Okay, that was just – And this, this then tied in again to that whole Vietnam image in my head, which is the horror that they see of having a blood-soaked guy turn up. Yeah. Now – there was there were a couple of and again this is where I, I go way beyond probably what Peter Weir even intended. There were some very famous events that occurred in the Vietnamese conflict that were broadcast basically that people immediately found out what had happened. I wonder how frequently the um, name Charlie came up too, like two point Charlie, uh, for example. Yeah, and so they would they got it in their doorstep and on on their nightly news in a way they'd never had before, and you were an awareness of what they'd made the kids do. If you wanted to go into that zone, you could kind of read Charlie's covered in blood and horribleness as a bit of a the elders suddenly realising what they made their younger kids do. Oh. I got this one. This one's mine. You bastard. You irreligious bastard. Daddy, Daddy! All right, we can hold Come on, come on. You, you bastard! Oh, Christ! Oh, Christ. Oh, Christ. Oh, Christ. Oh, Christ. I have to report this, man. We can't, Captain. Sit down. Well, you shut up, you animals. Destroy the you hear what I said? Now shut up! You hear what I said? Now shut up!
axe. Go to the door, see that no one goes up. Never did nothing wrong. You always kept the best bits for yourself. I've never done nothing bad. Never done nothing wrong. Now listen! Listen! All of you. Now just remember, an accident has occurred. Yeah. A shooting accident. Uh, Mr. Metcalf? Mr. Metcalf. <clears throat> a, uh, a shooting accident has occurred. Would you say that? Hmm? Go on. A shooting accident has occurred. That's right. That is right. Better not interfere with my work. I haven't finished my work. Well, I can only go so far, Len. Well, I've got my career to consider. I haven't finished my work. Your work? Your bloody work. You're in this as much as we are. What about those experiments? Those bloody experiments of yours? Take right. that experiment right, back man. to the All hospital, right. will you? All right, Len. Move it. Yes, Len. Come on. Come on. Bring you along. Come on, China. We've got a nice Meccano set for you. Come on. There was one other thing, or actually two other things I wanted to ask very quickly, is I thought that Bruce Spencer's character, Charlie, had the same issue that David Argue's character had in Razorback. Mm -hmm. How mad and not with it is he really? Because he's almost introduced like Ruprecht the monkey boy in the opening sequence. And then there's a point where he says, G'day, in this incredibly clear way when he's walking the hood down the street. To the blacksmith, by the way. And can I say how awesome it is that there's a that car there is blacksmith? a blacksmith, yes. But he then, he then lowers the hood and goes, G'day. And it's this really, I know exactly what I'm saying, delivery. And then when he's arguing his case after he's killed the priest, there's no kind of sort of delivery. He's saying, you know, I mean. Well, there's, I never did nothing wrong. I never did nothing wrong. I never did nothing yeah. wrong as opposed to. But it's not really delivered in a way that seems really uber crazy. It's just mm. this is the thing. So I was kind of I curious think he's about that. Not very bright, but he's yeah. not sort of sub-capable. No. Does, does does someone reference him at one point as like a a veggie? Is an he a experiment. veggie? He's an experiment. Yeah. Uh, so go back to the hospital with your experiments. Take this one with you. Ah. Gesturing to Charlie. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So it could be that he hasn't been taught a lot. He mm. Doesn't know a lot, but he is at least smart enough to know that he's getting a raw deal out of this. Mm. If he has been experimented on, maybe that wasn't what the desired outcome was. Maybe he was supposed to be... Maybe he's better than he was. Yeah. Or maybe they were trying to make a like, blunt instrument. They could just point at cars and make them crash, and it's like, oh, he's not supposed to be asking questions. Yeah, mm. yeah. And the other thing I really was aware of was the very last shot in the film as he's driving away. It is lit... Exactly like an uber creepy thing. It's like a three, it's even a half face lit, maybe even slightly less of the classic kind of evil villain through a, a car on Arthur's face. Mm -hmm. And he's got a grin after all the violence, but it's this really happy, I can drive again grin. And yeah. it could have been creepy. It could have been him 
I am now a completely psychotic person and my brain is broke. But then his but, entire character throughout does seem to have some kind of delivered mental delay. Mm. There's a word I can't <laughs> say apparently because of my own. Yeah. <laughs> I mean he's he's shy and retiring to a to a fault. To uh, a, okay. a literal fault. Yeah. Sure. Could also be because he's a movie character, this, but <laughs> when he pauses after discovering he can drive again, you kind of think, oh my goodness, he just killed another person. And he just goes, I can drive! Yeah. yeah. He doesn't think, oh my goodness, I have murdered a living being, and this time there is no ambiguity as to my intent <laughs> or culpability. But then yeah, he was I... following the mayor's instructions exactly. Mm-hmm. It was the mayor telling him to go backwards and forwards, and he was just following exactly what the mayor said. Yeah, and at, at that risk of kind of harping once more on that Vietnam thing, that I got that as the real... I think it was that sequence that got me thinking about the Vietnam cycle in, in this entirety, is that he very much is, isn't this wonderful, I can drive, look at the innards of the car. Because yeah. that's what I almost... I, by the end of the film, I was seeing the kids as like the insides, like the guts of the, of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. The way that Daryl sprawls out through there is almost like... You know, if you, if it was a slasher flick, you can imagine it as the guts of a human or, you yeah. know, someone. Mm-hmm. And the other couple of sequences where they kill a car, you don't even see the people they kill. They stab yes. in through the window yeah. or whatever. And, and it's like the cars are screaming. So, but yeah, I, I saw him standing over his fallen beast and all he's taken away, even though there is that moment where you see him screaming about the horror of what he's doing in the mayor's car. Yeah. Yeah. His big takeaway is I can, can drive. drive again. So, yeah, it's like the mayor's basically got him to do this. And and that's actually really interesting because that's the mayor's downfall. As well as losing the entire town, the big loss in the film is him losing control of Arthur and Arthur being able to escape or not, depending on how you view the traps. But he's able to do that specifically because the mayor's giving him the go-ahead. And speaking of, very quickly, one little thing I noticed, and I guess it was maybe even just because of the way they were filmed... When Daryl's character is killed, when Daryl's car is killed, the mayor pats his car first. Oh. Before he is then patting Arthur on the head a bit <laughs> oh, wow. later. We actually see him give a good on oh, you yeah, to the car. But I mean, that may just be because he's in a position by the front of the car. Oh, and speaking of stunts, like all the stunts that were done, they were like real act. Uh, yes. I mean, the, the bit where they're in the barn, that's actually Terry Camilleri just getting out of the way as the car comes running Jesus. through and slamming against the wall and then running towards the camera mm. in sort of bottom quarter of shot. So, mm. so Chris Hayward was lucky to make it to, yeah. to uh, Razorback. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people who are in these early movies lucky were very really lucky to make to it. Say it. <laughs> oh, Razorback. <laughs> terrible. Uh, yeah. And also, yeah, I think we just we talked about the fact that the way the midnight departure of those people look, it's just so much like refugee footage you see yeah. on TV now. And I would imagine probably from the time, too, that you're getting refugees and, and things in the, in, in the media. No doubt another social commentary. I mean, that's the other thing. Is the film could be a social commentary about just about anything. Yeah. Probably not in a bad way. Maybe that was what it was intended. We did budget last time. I think we said it was 250000 to make. We don't have any figures on the I couldn't find any box office figures either, except no. for not high. No, yeah. <laughs> Probably made back 250000 though. Yeah, so as an exploitation. Yeah, eventually. You'd like to think. I think someone in an interview I heard has said it's made now over a million in trickle stuff because, you know, every sale of a DVD still gets a few cents or something. Mm. I'd say by now it's certainly yeah. made it back. Mm. And I don't think it's done Peter Weir any long-term career harm. No. Actually, when this was sold as a DVD, it was in a two-pack. It was this and another Peter Weir film. Yes. I, what Peter Weir film I can't goes remember. this one? Cause... Oh, he doesn't go. 
No. No. Um, I remember someone actually lamenting this, that apparently it's currently easier to get a full version of this because it's the current version is a Criterion Collection one, which means that there's a bunch of additional features and things in the American release, but oh. we don't have that here in Australia. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, I can't remember who it was that uh, that it was released with, but yeah, it was a double, basically a double feature with something. Can't remember. Good story though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, glad <laughs> I started when you, it. When you think of Peter Weir and who he became, and pretty much any other film he's he's mm. done, it just doesn't fit. No. No. And it's interesting because the next film after this was uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, mm. which bizarrely is a much more dreamlike movie, but has a much clearer storyline progression in yeah. it, I think, than this, which is the individual shots are very, here is some real stuff that's happening. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's even any dream sequences or anything in this, are there? There's not, there are no, flash. No, it's not like the, the surrealism of. Yeah, no one's. Firing flares over the hills in the middle of the night. Not that I recall. I think there's a couple of flashbacks and things, isn't there, to certain sequences when he when he goes and investigates. When he does his own, when he's doing his own crash investigation, when he goes up the road. To when where Arthur the, did this. Yeah, when Arthur did this, when he goes up but the road. Would do that. The you, if you're in a car crash, you wander up to see where you were. When... Well, they did in Fast and Furious. That well-known documentary, <laughs> absolutely. yes, absolutely. I couldn't um, agree more. And did you take... From that, so he swore that he saw lights on the road. Yes. Did you take from that that he is then satisfied that the mirror is what caused the lights? Yes and no. I think it was the mirror and a person. Oh no no no! Sorry no. I know in the actual because in the actual film you see the headlights come on. But do you oh, think I see, Arthur I see. convinced himself that what he saw was the reflection of the headlights through the mirror? I think he took or that it he as still him suspected, thinking that there was human involvement. Okay, cool. But he can't put his finger on anything. Like no, that. yeah, and that does seem to be very much. That's very much the Wicker Man part of it, which is that he all the way through he just knows something's wrong, but mm. he doesn't know what. And that's I can't remember what line he uses in the Aussie version when he's talking to the Reverend, but in the American dub he very clearly says, "I think I know what's wrong." There's much more exposition in the cars that eat people. Well, it's much shorter film. It so is, yeah, and he really clear. I mean, there's got sequences where they cut to what was silence in our in our version has got him saying more stuff about how I think there's some stuff going on in town and whatever, and he sort of confronts the mayor at one point. But in the Aussie version, I don't know, but in, in the American version when he's talking to the Reverend, he's like, you've got to help me, it's a matter of life or death. Oh, Whereas right. I think in the Aussie version he just says we need to talk. Or, yeah, can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? And he doesn't yeah. even explain any suspicions. No. Yeah. It's very hair-trigger for whoever overheard that and then decided to off the Reverend because – Going to a priest and saying, I'd like to talk to you about something, it's not that unusual. No. Yeah, and I mean, as we said, the Christine chasing through the hills part afterwards suggests that the mayor at least knows that there's some real problems. And, that's, of course, that's the reason he wants him to be his son, move in, is so that he can control him. He yes, says, you know, Absolutely. you're part of the family now and the first thing family does is family doesn't talk to priests. <laughs> family doesn't talk to outsiders. No. But priests does add an extra level of creepy. Well, when he actually says, you know, an outsider, like, oh, I don't know. The Reverend, to pick a random example. Yeah. So, yeah, he does keep bringing Arthur back in line, doesn't he? Yeah. Like a wayward child. Hmm. Cool. Then, all in all, gang, what did we think of The Cars That Ate Paris? I actually, having thought about it and having accepted a couple of, I want to say shortfalls, but the ways that it was filmed, I'm actually going to give this four V-dub spikes out of five. I really liked it. I think it was very different to the film it was marketed mm. as. But watching it, you can see all these films that came after it. You can watch this and then say, oh, that looks like that scene in Mad Max. That looks like mm. whatever else. 
But when you're watching it, you're not seeing where it came from, what its influences were. Mm. So I think that's a, a really good statement to the movie. So it stands given alone more as than own... it took. Mm. I think I go to three and a half because it has a, at least for me, it could be more cohesive. I think we talked about that some things start and don't quite play out. Yeah. yeah. It's... I, I've reassessed because of that. I, it, that bugged me. In fact, when I first started watching, I think my first comment I was going to write down was, this is such a mess. And then it was only after I began to think about it, I'm like, eh, maybe that's what they were going for. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think mess would be more than... I wouldn't say mess. <laughs> no. But it could it could use... could have used some brushing up or tightening around those edges. Mm. So, yes. Three and a half questionable pieces of garden furniture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, and I will say that the one thing that I did notice about this was that they did demolish the frontage of the, the the hall twice. You know how sometimes you actually see an action scene and they do the same kick like three yes. times because it's done. They drove through it and then nothing happened for a while. A bunch of other stuff happened and then they drove through it again. Yeah. We're hoping we're all too excited in the moment to mm. notice that scene. But I will say for a feature, for a first film, Peter, we're hitting yeah. the ground with this. Yeah, absolutely. Impressive. Very impressive. Mm-hmm. Is he still working? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I don't know what he's doing now. I know that the the McAvoy, the McElroy's, McElroy's, McAvoy's, that they've sort of gone into retirement. But Peter Weir's still involved. And while Callum does a spot of research, we'll just take a moment to tell you what's coming up next month. Next month we'll be going out almost, just almost on Halloween, and so we'll bring something a bit spooky to you. It is the Lost, the Almost Lost classic, Outback Vampires. The one thing we forgot to mention. Yes. The one thing we forgot to mention, because I made a comment, smart-ass comment last time, that we'll have to have a bingo card of various animals, that after Rez- Razorback there were well, kangaroos the and meant, there was... The B-dub was meant to be an echidna. Oh, of course. That makes perfect sense. Um, but, of course, this one was staunchly not that. There were no emus, there were no kangaroos, there was no anything until John Malian's College war cry, or whatever the hell he called it, because oh, yes. holy crap, what was with that? It was like they'd suddenly remembered that they were an Australian film, and they then had to just rapid fire every Aussie movie that, oh, sorry, every Aussie word they could think of. Yes. It was like he was doing the audiobook of the kids' big picture book of Australian animals. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's not just animals, there's places. I mean, he starts Weapons? with Woomera. Yeah, yeah, he starts with Woomera a couple of times. Then he goes through Nullarbor. Then he mentions a couple of animals. Then he mentions an orangutan for some bizarre reason. Of course, you know, famously native to Australia. Have you forgotten the meaning of those words? Woomera, Woomera, Babaloo, Boomerang, Crocodile, Kookaburra, Wombat, Orangutan, Wee-ho, Way-ho, Taramanga Mine, Quandong, Billabong, Gundabluey Pine, Platypus, Emu, Wallaby, Roo, Ivers, Bulger, the White Cockatoo, Marabara, Cowra, Colamine, Banker, Bogabine, Narabine, Nevertine, Yanker, Hoopra, Hoopra, Ha Ha Ha! Yanker, It's like he's trying to wake up the Winter Soldier. Yeah. <laughs> or reading out books from the Necronomicon. The Necronomicon. Ozicon? No, the Ozicon. The, the Aussie book. <laughs> Necronosicon. Fuck you. <laughs> and actually, looking back to last month's episode, we can recommend going and checking out episode 300 of the Projection Booth podcast. It's actually covering Highlander, which was all directed by Russell Razorback Mulcahy. <laughs> I forgot the movie I was talking about. 
Yeah. Highlander, also directed by Russell Mulcahy, and there is an interview with him in the episode in which he does actually talk about Razorback for a while. So cool. if you want to learn more straight from the director's mouth, that's a thing to check out. And Bruce Spence is interviewed in the projection booth, I believe it was episode 311? Something similar, I think. Something yeah. along those lines. Maybe yeah. we'll have interviews one day. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I've been Daria. I've been November. And I'm still Calm. Well done. Thank you. Thank you for listening to November, Callum and Daria on Podsploitation. You can find the show on your podcatcher of choice, contact us on Facebook, on Twitter or Instagram as at Podsploitation, or by email to podsploitation at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, donations can be made at paypal.me forward slash podsploitation. Theme music is Creation Time by Kilo Cats. Find and purchase their work at www.musicbrowse.de. All other material used is for review or illustration only. No claim or infringement is intended, and it remains the copyright of their respective holders. No small country towns were harmed in the making of this podcast. Podsploitation is a moment of mayhem production. end of my story. Incredible, huh? A whole town living off car crashes. My brother George is dead and buried in Paris. But I can drive again. You win some, you lose some, right? I'll tell you one thing, though. I'm getting the first plane out of this crazy country. It's goodbye, Australia. Brooklyn, here I come. <laughs>